Welcome to the Candida Chronicles with our host, Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. In this podcast, Michael will answer your questions and reveal the shocking truth that the cause of most chronic ailments is not what you've been told. The source is Candida, a yeast overgrowth which, when it becomes systemic, can cause all sorts of seemingly unrelated ailments such as chronic fatigue syndrome and even weight gain. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330. And now, without further ado, Michael Biamonte. And hello again, everyone. This is Michael Biamonte, clinical nutritionist. Today for our live podcast, we're going to be discussing the effects of mold and sick building syndrome. Now, this is a a very obfuscated, uh, let's say, subject because there are many people suffering with sick building syndrome and various environmental illness who have no clue at all that this is happening to them. Uh, Occasionally, if you watch some of the cable TV shows on the Discover Channel and some of the more sophisticated channels, you will find they have uh, these shows that essentially are about people who have mysterious illnesses that haven't been diagnosed or who have been, unfortunately, many times misdiagnosed, all to end, end up with the result of them having an environmental illness. So first off, what is an environmental illness? Well, an an environmental illness is essentially what it sounds like. It's an illness that's caused by one's environment, and what is in the environment that's making the person ill is some type of toxicity. Environmental illnesses can run the, the spectrum of being caused by toxic chemicals of various kinds, industrial fumes, wastes. Very often they're caused by toxic metals, such as mercury, inert uranium, other heavy metals such as arsenic, cadmium, aluminum, lead, all common to cause environmental illnesses. But in the last 20 years or so, there's been a lot of attention on environmental illnesses which are caused caused by molds. Uh, There's a whole industry that has arisen due to this where we now have companies that specialize in mold remediation. This is where they come into your home and using sophisticated equipment, they detect the presence of molds. They can actually detect the exact type or species of mold that's in overgrowth in your home. Typically what they'll do is they'll um, use their their, uh, investigative means and equipment to detect areas of higher moisture Once they find these areas of higher moisture, they then look in that same area for evidence of mold physically, which you can see by inspection. But then they'll also do testing, take samples of material, take samples of the air in that area, and test for these molds. And when it's done correctly, the control sample is almost always your outside environment. So... What they'll do is go out in front of your house, let's say, into your driveway, and they will take samples of the air there, and they will use those as the control, and then then compare that to 
what's actually inside your home. Uh, the interesting thing is that this mold often is totally invisible to the homeowner or to the person suffering. Very often they're not aware, they can't necessarily see the mold. On the, uh, even in some cases, people who are trained in this field are an, unable to visibly inspect and see evidence of the mold. Um, this is where these, uh, the more sophisticated equipment comes in, which are usually handheld devices. It's not as though it's, uh, you know, some kind of a huge machine that Hewlett Packard is sending in. They're usually handheld devices that you can use and you can detect areas of excessive moisture. And very often when those things, those areas are detected, if the mold remediator has a hammer or some such instrument and he simply knocks into the wall or knocks into the ceiling, very often you'll be inundated with tremendous amounts of material all infected by mold falling down on you. This is not an unusual story to hear. Now, these, we're not going to get into today necessarily the specifics on this as far as what the organisms are because you can always look that up and Google it. You can read the article on my website, Environmental Molds and Their Reaction, uh, Interreaction with Intestinal Molds. We're going to cover that aspect of it today, but I'm not going to get into uh, in detail these exact organisms because this, this is to give you a basic idea of the subject. It's not necessarily for you to become an expert or you to become a remediator yourself. A key though, in looking at this illness, uh, there are certain attributes that the illness takes on that people will start to affect. You will notice that sinus problems and bronchial problems will be amongst the first. Very often fatigue is an initial symptom of uh, a mold environmental illness where the person just seems to have lost their zip, zap, and go. Fatigue accompanied by fever sometimes is a case, but this is, fever is usually, in most cases, something uh, which is very on and off. It's not consistent at all. However, sinus problems of all kinds, and then bronchial problems, problems breathing, chronic coughs, uh, coughs which may produce a green or yellow discharge or even might be clear, are very predominant in, in the sick building syndrome. When a person has a productive cough, which is a productive cough is one that's generating mucus, if the mucus is clear, this is most likely a fungal or a viral infection which is taking place, or it could be an allergy. And very often in environmental illnesses, it is a clear mucus because the, it's not actually an infection the person has, it's an allergy to the mold in the house. So therefore you will get a clear or white mucus discharge. Once the mucus discharge becomes yellow or green, this is a sign of a bacterial infection the person now has acquired. And it's not unusual for in the mold infections that you can inhale, which go into your lungs and will cause a chronic mold infestation there to eventually turn into secondary infections, which would be bacterial, and then surface as a green or yellow discharge. Uh, we've covered this in some of the earlier podcasts on the use of antibiotics, the difference between the green-yellow discharge and the clear and white ones. So if you're confused on that, you may want to review those earlier podcasts. Essentially, what happens, a person is usually minding his own business, and he happens to move into a home which has mold. And within a period of a few weeks or months, the person starts to be fatigued, they start to develop a nasal drip. They start to develop bronchial problems, coughing, whatnot. 
if the person is lucky enough to go away on a vacation where they're out of the house for a few weeks, they'll notice their symptoms improve. And they will then notice that their symptoms get worse when they come back into the house. We've seen this in various cases. We've actually seen people who had environmental illness leave their homes and actually go on trips to areas of the world that were some of the most polluted places you can ever imagine, and they actually felt better being in those environments as opposed to being in their own uh, homes or apartments where the mold levels were astronomical. So the person hopefully is going to notice this. It may take repeated times of being in and out of the house for them to notice this, but hopefully this is something which they will notice. Because once you notice this, you now have a major clue. If you're a crime scene investigator here, you have your first major clue that you do have sick building syndrome and you live in a home that needs to be remediated. This, unfortunately, is not good news for anyone because remediation is expensive. Remediation itself can cost, cost anywhere between five to $10,000, and you have to be careful who does it because not everyone knows what they're doing. It can become very complicated when you're dealing with air-conditioned ducts. If you live in a large home and you have central air conditioning, all those ducts have to be taken out and usually replaced because you'll find mold throughout. What, ha what happens uh, exactly is that the person living in this home will breathe in the mold from the environment. The mold spores go into their lungs and eventually the person will start to develop mold or, or fungal infection in the lungs and perhaps in the upper part of the gastrointestinal tract, which will cause their bronchial and sinus symptoms and then they can start developing some gastrointestinal symptoms. Usually the intestinal tract is the one which would be more resistive to the mold infection. This is quite the opposite in the case where the person has taken broad-spectrum antibiotics and they, they develop the stereotypical case of candidiasis, which here on the Candida Chronicles we talk about in depth. That it's, these are two conditions which have this as an opposite. In the sick building syndrome, the person's sinus and lung are the first infected and the most vulnerable, where in the standard case of candidiasis, which we discuss here on Candida Chronicles, it is the intestinal tract which is the most vulnerable when exposed to antibiotics. The lung and sinus would be secondary areas of infection. Now, an interesting thing, which I think we have touched on in earlier podcasts, is why is it that some people move into a home or an apartment that's infected with mold and they are okay there? They don't demonstrate symptoms. But yet, other occupants of the home have all types of horrible symptoms. Enough horrible symptoms for them to be on a TV show where they're investigating what was wrong with this person. Well, there have been a lot of speculation as to why this is. Some of my colleagues have shown that some of these people genetically um, are very vulnerable to mold or fungal infections. Uh, therefore, unable to really fight them off. But we in, at the Biamonte Center did sort of an in-house survey, uh, not so much an in-house test, more of a survey of the patients we had who had environmental illness. 
And we looked at their families, or in some cases friends who also occupied the same place, and we found out something very, very interesting. The people who are the most susceptible to symptoms of sick building syndrome and environmental syndromes relating to molds and funguses are those who themselves have an existing or pre-existing overgrowth of candida albicans in their intestinal tract. So in other words, in plain English, to make this simpler, those who already have a candida problem, those who are already seeking treatment for candida, who have perhaps already recognized that they have acquired a candida overgrowth uh, in their own life, which is their basically the, the crux of their illness, these are the people who are the most susceptible and the most symptomatic to being exposed to the mold environment in the sick building syndrome case. Now, the, this is actually kind of more interesting than the subject itself, or either subject, either subjects isolated themselves, because this gets more into the interaction between intestinal molds and the environmental molds, and that is the subject of the article I referred to before, the environmental molds and their interreactions with intestinal molds. Uh, from a mycology standpoint, anyone who is studying mycology would have to find this to be extremely interesting. Because what this is essentially saying is that there is a, a definite interreaction that takes place between the molds or the fungus which overgrows in your own intestinal tract from the use of antibiotics and the mold which overgrows in your home environment due to excessive, usually it's excessive moisture and uh, the other correct environmental settings which allow these molds to grow. So those who already have a candida problem or some type of intestinal dysbiosis, let's say, just to review that term again, the intestinal dysbiosis term means that the person has a disordered intestinal flora. The intestinal flora, which normally consists of many different types of bacteria and as minor flora, yeast and fungal organisms, is imbalanced to where bad bacteria and bad yeast and fungus has now taken over. Now, this would be literally the same type of environment that a woman has when she has a yeast infection, only it's pertaining to the entire digestive tract. So in those people, there is an interreaction that occurs between the intestinal mold and the mold that you're breathing in. Now how this happens is essentially mediated by your immune system. Your immune system is on guard and it's hyperactive against molds and fungus because the person themselves has chronic candidiasis, which is an overgrowth of mold or fungus in the intestinal tract. The exact species, of course, is being named here. It's the species of Candida albicans that's overgrowing in the person's intestines. Well, Candida albicans can also live in the environment. It's something that hasn't really been given much attention to because the uh, incidence of this was thought to be very rare. Well, it turns out it's not. It turns out that environmental testing in quite a few of our patients have shown significant amounts of candida albicans in their air, in the air conditioning ducts, and in, in different places in the house. Now, the first question that I had when I came across this is how the hell could the candida albicans be living 
in a structural environment like this. Because as we, from what we know about the metabolism of candida, well, candida is mostly an organism which lives in mucous membranes and it feeds off glucose, sugars, and carbohydrates. So what are the glucose, sugars, and carbohydrates that are in somebody's ceiling or in somebody's wall, you see, which is allowing this candida to live? See, this, this is an interesting question. Well, upon examination, what you end up finding is that animal feces, which is in the wall or in the attic or in the, the ceilings, from various mice and different chipmunks and squirrels and, and whatnot that get into the home, uh, provides a growth medium for the candida, and the candida is then able to live. With various insects, doesn't have to be termites. Most people will immediately think of termites in what I'm about to say, but this is not true. But it's not necessarily true, but there are different types of insects which also get into the, the walls, and they help to some degree break down the cellulose that is in the wood, and there are certain species of candida who have, amazingly enough, been able to feed off these forms of cellulose, these enzymatically broken down uh, areas of cellulose with their little insect friends being their helpers. A candida would not be the primary fungus that you would find in a sick building syndrome, but I did want to mention it because it's something that has been newly discovered as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and it, of course, it, it becomes a direct match with the person who suffers from intestinal candida. So when you bring these two forces together, you have now environmental candida, which is in the person's home and the structure, it's in the air. This environmental candida, you will inhale to a degree. You can inhale small amounts of the actual fungus, and you can certainly inhale different uh, facets of it, which have enough antibody-antigen reaction to your own immune system to trigger reactions. Because keep in mind, it's the antibody and antigen, and also the various mycotoxins that the candida produces in your body that you're actually reacting to. So in, another way to put it is that these same allergens that the candida makes within your body that you react to are now released in the air and now you have the unfortunate pleasure of also inhaling them and that's going to set off another cascade of inflammatory events, cytokine activity, all this nonsense now occurs in your body which is uh, as, as if you didn't have it bad enough having the candida in your intestines, you're now breathing it in from your own home. So that's not a very good situation. The worst organism, most likely, that you're going to find in the home is called Stachybudris. Uh, this is an organism that I've come up, up against in some candida patients for many years, 20, 30 years, and there are a limited amount of medicines that actually kill Stachybudris in the body. They do exist, you can kill it, but you have to know specifically what those medicines are. And interestingly enough, there, there are not any prescription medicines that I've ever found that really kill it. Um, probably one of the most effective medicines to kill Stachybudris is Biocidin, which is made by the Biobotanica company. This is a medicine which we know will kill Stachybudris. That we also, I could say, which is an interesting side note, that there are mold remediation companies who actually use products like Biocidin. They specialize in organic mold remediation, which is quite interesting. 
but in any case, the the other types of molds, whether they're external or actually inside the structure of the house or around the house and the foliage or whatnot, release various toxins which the person is going to react to because his own body is overreacting and in an autoimmune state regarding the entire subject of mold, yeast, or fungus. There are going to be secondary bacteria there too, which you could find that surround these molds, which also are going to add to the problem. Where the person has leaky gut syndrome, you're going to find that this is all heightened. Uh, people with leaky gut essentially have damage, which, which has been done to their intestinal tract. Their intestinal lining has become too thin or porous due to constant inflammatory and allergic reactions going on in the gut. And it allows substances to literally leak into the bloodstream, which normally wouldn't be allowed to enter the bloodstream. This leaky gut syndrome is the underlying reason for most uh, autoimmune illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, is a big example, fibromyalgia, um, many different autoimmune illnesses are all dependent on whether or not leaky gut is actually there for them to get their start. So a person with leaky gut who comes in contact with, these, with this type of environment is going to be far worse than even the, the more common candida sufferer. Typically, allergic reactions would be the hallmark or one of the first things that you would look for in a case like this. A um, person may be inhaling or touching mold spores, and they will cause reactions which could be immediate or even delayed. These reactions could include hay fever-like symptoms uh, or could be symptoms of colds and flus. And this is going to happen, mind you, regardless of whether the mold is dead or alive. Here's a, an aspect of this that we need to cover. If the mold in the house is dead, let's say, if this was to happen to be the case, it's not really going to make a difference because the body's immune reaction will be the same to live mold as dead mold. The body doesn't know the difference. It just knows that the DNA that it's being exposed to is that of a mold and it's allergic to mold. So it wouldn't make a difference either way. Asthma attacks, also very common in people who move into these houses. Um, there can be different types of pneumonia or short acute bouts of ammonia, which resemble bacterial pneumonia, but not quite the same. It almost looks like uh, comes off as an allergic pneumonia that the person has. It's very unusual condition which often can be misdiagnosed or mistreated there are various irritant effects molds can cause irritation of the eyes the skin the nose the throat the lungs sometimes can create a burning sensation in these areas and of course all people who are in this situation are unfortunately susceptible to opportunistic infections we had covered up the opportunistic infections on earlier in the week on Tuesday's podcast where we discussed the relationship between viruses and candida and different molds. Well, surely anyone who lives in a house which is moldy is going to be more susceptible to developing Epstein-Barr virus or Cytomegalia virus or HV6 or any of the herpes class viruses which cause chronic fatigue syndrome. 
Aspergillus is an interesting example. Uh, Aspergillus is one of the most common molds to exist in the sick building syndrome. It has a particular affinity to the lungs where it causes various bronchial problems. Um, skin illnesses are also very common, very often overlooked as having to do with sick building syndrome. This is a problem because there are many times where people who have some type of chronic skin issue, usually it will be diagnosed as atopic dermatitis, which means you have a rash, but I don't know what it's from or what's causing it. This is the the technical definition of atopic dermatitis from the typical dermatolo dermatological viewpoint. You have a rash and we don't know why. Well, th that also holds true for contact dermatitis, but at least in contact dermatitis, they're willing to say you touched something or came in contact with something that caused the rash. We still don't know what it is, though, you say, but it exists. But any form of dermatitis, whether it's being labeled eczema or psoriasis, whatever, is something which someone in the sick building syndrome is more vulnerable to. And if you, if you were to gather a clue as to how this is coming about, it would be the same as we discussed earlier, where the person will notice they leave the environment for a few weeks and their skin problem will start to get better. Same thing would be true of athlete's foot and other types of skin mold-related rashes. Uh, how you can tell that it would be environmental-related, again, is the person is going to leave the environment and it's going to get better and it will worsen when they come back. It's that simple. Very often a person who has a, some type of dermatitis and they're being treated for it locally <clears throat> using local lo localized creams or some such thing uh, may not get very good results or the results might be very uh, rollercoastery. They make it better, worse, better, worse, up and down, up and down. Again, you'd want to see whether or not this person gets better when they leave the environment for a week or two. Usually it takes a minimum of a week for the person being out of the environment, for whatever is physically ailing them to start to uh, destimulate. And then, and usually in the second week of them being out in the environment is where you're going to see the biggest progress, so the most change. And unfortunately, that's the, unless you actually went in and did a whole mold remediation, that you would have no other way of knowing this. Uh, it's a unfortunately primitive way of doing it, but there isn't any scientific testing you can do on an individual to determine that he's uh, exposed to a sick building syndrome. There is no such test for this. So the only actual tests that would exist is to remove the person from the environment. If you find they get better, then go into the environment and investigate and look for overgrowths of mold and fungal toxins. And then you know you've got your man. But other than that, you have to observe the patient, observe how they're responding to their treatment, how they respond to um, different foods and triggers that occur. <laughs> and, and the person that has exposure to aflatoxin B1, which is also a pretty well-studied and well-known mycotoxin, it very often occurs with different forms of aspergillus, um, it can be actually be produced by aspergillus in some, in some situations. 
these people tend to have bad reactions to certain foods which also tend to be contaminated with the same aflatoxin B1. So if you have a person, <coughs> excuse me, who has a grain allergy, who has a peanut allergy, which are very common to be in, uh, affected with aflatoxin, it's very possible they have aflatoxin B1 in their home as an environmental mold. So if you were to have a patient come to your office and they say, well, I have a peanut allergy, what, what not, and you find this is true, it, it's interesting to note whether or not their peanut allergy heightens when they're actually in their home as opposed to being out of the home. Because again, always remember, when you have the person in the home, then you have the dual effect occurring of the internal allergen going on as it normally would based on their own infection. But then you have the outside influence of the environmental allergy affecting them. Uh, this is why it's, a, it's always a key question for a practitioner to ask the person if their symptoms are worse in any particular environment. So if you, if you were uh, interviewing a new patient who happens to be a candida patient, you want to ask the patient whether or not his symptom, they notice their symptoms change as they change environments. Are, are they worse at home? Are they worse at work? Are they worse in their car? So, but cars are another outlet for environmental contamination. Most people would never think this. The easiest thing for most people to conclude is that they're, they have a sick building syndrome that relates to their workplace. That's the most common suspected area. And that's fine. Secondly, you'd suspect the home. But third, thirdly, where no one ever suspects is the car. And cars can develop overgrowths of mold and other toxins just as easily and just as fast and probably are worse containers for these vessels than your house or your work environment because the car obviously is small and very enclosed. So it's very common that people develop a constant recycling environmental illness from driving in their car because there's not that much aeration going on unless you have the windows open all the time. And even at that it's not going to be uh, so workable. So understanding whether or not symptoms heighten or worsen as you change environments is another key to being able to determine if a person has a sick building syndrome, which they're living with. Now, the good news of all this, if there is any, is that it can be handled. If a person happens to live in a moldy environment, and they're not experiencing any of the symptoms that we've discussed today, well, that's great. Their body's immune system may have just fought it off and they're fine. And it may not mean anything in the future at all. They can move out of that environment, move into a different one that's clean and safe, and case closed. In the situation where the person has their own uh, in internal problem with the candida or other molds, of course they can do the treatment at the Biamonte Center, and within a year or so, we can usually completely disinfect these nasty organisms from their system, normalize their intestinal flora, and now they're free of that illness and they're on their way to becoming healthy again. In the case where it's an environmental situation, well, you could always get rid of the car. You could always move or have your house or living court is remediated. If it's your work environment, you are in for a challenge. Uh, from what I've had, from my experience in dealing with patients 
who were able to prove and document that their work environment was the source of their environmental sickness, uh, first thing the, the people need to do is organize. You need to get everyone together at your workplace, make them aware of this, particularly find who has symptoms, because the people who are physically suffering are going to be the more motivated ones to help you in your task at hand. And then you want to approach the employment and tell these people and point out to these people that you have a sick building syndrome. Uh, bosses and uh, employers are not going to be always the, the quickest on their feet to want to admit to this for obvious reasons that there's, a, there's potentially a liability there. But uh, if they do not own the building, you see, that, that puts them pretty much at the same effect point as the employee. Because now it, they're renting space from a building which is diseased. So bottom line is, in, in this case, you must organize, you must get people together, it must, you must recognize, you must get evidence that there is mold overgrowth in your workplace, and then you have to either get your employee, I'm sorry, employer or management to do something about it, or get management or the employer to then get the building owner to do something about it. And that doesn't, doesn't always work out. We've had situations where it has. I've heard of situations where it hasn't. And people have literally had to have left the job because their health depended on it, which is uh, not always a, a good solution. But it can get to the point where things will be so bad where the person can't function anyway. It's not unusual that p these people would not be able to go to work on a regular basis. They'd be constantly calling in sick because they have the sick building syndrome in the first place. Now, that, that particular aspect, if it goes back to what I said at the beginning, it's going to be the people who have their own internal overgrowth of molds and funguses, which are the most susceptible to being re-stimulated or have their symptoms heightened by the environment and the building that they're in. So a person who, let's say, has a very strong sick building syndrome at work, who they themselves happen to have chronic candidiasis, well, if they're able to handle their own chronic candidiasis, they're going to fare much better at work. They'll be healthier and more resistive. They'll be able to tolerate the toxic mold environment much better. So it's possible they may not necessarily have to leave their job in that case. That is speculation. Every case is obviously different and individual. So I'm speaking from a generality there. And speaking from the viewpoint that that's possible, it may be possible the person doesn't have to leave their job at that point. Um, in, in terms of uh, the legalities that are involved, bringing up the fact that you yourself have candida and now you're in a challenged environment is not really going to be recognized by any of the health agencies you work with. Uh, these are not always the sharpest crayons in the box that you're dealing with, so you're not going to depend on that. What you're going to depend on is simply the physical evidence that you might have in the building where you, there's obviously mold growing that you can see or if you've brought a remediator in to actually test the area where you can show the factual tests that show the elevated levels of mold and whatnot in the building. And then you're going to couple that with the testimony of your fellow workers who are all highly symptomatic and suffering. 
usually those two things combined will get the government agencies to move and make the owner of the building or who's ever in charge actually do something about it and get it remediated. This has been my experience. I can't say that I'm necessarily an expert in that, but I can tell you that from my experience, that's what I've seen. Well, I hope this information has been helpful. Um, certainly, this is a subject of great interest because it's something which unfortunately has existed for quite a long time and there's been a lack of acknowledgement that this uh, condition does exist. In understanding this condition, it, it reveals the mystery of why some people are horribly ill in some environments and others aren't. Because you see, it can be very confusing. If you're gonna say that, well, I have sick building syndrome and my house or my office space has mold and toxins, and that's why I'm so ill, you're bound to be asked the question, well, if that's your case, why is Joe apparently okay? Joe works right next to you or across the, the, uh, the hall from you, and Joe's perfectly fine. So what, what's the, how could you be sick and Jim not be? And this goes back to my initial statement that I made, which is a very important datum to keep, which is that the person who has their own intestinal imbalance of candidiasis or other fungal or mold situations is the one who is going to be the most reactive in the, in the sick building environment. So once again, to put this in layman terms to make sure it's fully understood, it's the person who himself is suffering with a, a candida condition, the person himself who suffers with intestinal mold overgrowth. He is the one that's going to be the most reactive in the house or the building where the mold overgrowth exists in the walls or in the ceilings. If you have, you have two people living in the same house, you have one person whose health appears to be fine and the other whose health is deteriorating. They're having bronchial problems. They're having sinus problems. They're having fatigue issues. They appear to have fevers all the time. They're, they're just, their illness is completely unpredictable. This is the person who most likely has uh, candidiasis, as we have discussed here on this show numerous times. And as we all have read about on the internet and on my website, this is the person who has chronic candida or yeast overgrowth. He's reacting to that environment because his own overgrowth of yeast and candida is interreacting with the antigens and the toxins from the mold, which is in his environment and in his air. And that combination is setting off his symptoms feverishly. The person who doesn't have the overgrowth of candida, he's the one who could be symptom-free in this environment that has mold. Now, eventually, the person who doesn't have the overgrowth of candida, who is symptom-free, he eventually, after years and years of being exposed to these molds, can start developing mold illness. It would depend on his uh, proximity to where the mold nest is, so to speak, and how much of the molds he's getting hit with. If he's uh, in a proximity that's relatively close where the air current is showering him with these molds, eventually, year after year, these molds are going to get in his sinus into his bronchial, probably his digestive tract, he too is going to start to develop symptoms. If he's unlucky enough to get hit with some type of flurry of antibiotic use due to some type of a trip where he has an accident or if he 
he goes someplace and he has a flu or a cold and he's given antibiotics or if he's given steroid medications for some type of injury. So in other words, if he's unfortunately given any of the medications, which we know are very likely to be an underlying cause of chronic candida or some type of chronic intestinal illness, then his reaction to his mold environment will dramatically increase within the month that he's on those antibiotics. So if your friend Joe, who's working in your building, who apparently is symptom-free, suddenly ends up on a course of steroids or antibiotics or antacids or any of the medications that are known to cause candida, you'll see within a month of him being on those medications that he's now going to react violently to that environment in the same fashion that your other person who has already been reacting had been doing. Well, very good. That's all for today. Tune in next Tuesday for our next podcast. Next Tuesday, we're going to be discussing a little bit more about environmental illness. We're going to take it a little bit more in depth in terms of what type of organisms you would typically come in contact with and what very specific symptoms they could produce. That's a wrap for this episode of the Candida Chronicles featuring Michael Biamonte, Certified Clinical Nutritionist. Michael holds a Doctorate of Nutropathy and is a New York State Certified Clinical Nutritionist. He is a professional member of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists and of the American College of Nutrition, and he's a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Clinical Nutrition Certification Board. For more information on how Michael can help you, please visit healthtruth.com, that's health-truth.com, or phone his office at 212-587-2330.